I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of Warriors in Their Own Words. In partnership with The Honor Project, we've brought this podcast back at a time when our nation needs these stories more than ever. Warriors in Their Own Words is our attempt to present an unvarnished, unsanitized truth of what we have asked of those who defend this nation. Thank you for listening, and by doing so, honoring those who have served. Today, we hear from James E.T. Hopkins, a thoracic surgeon tasked with treating wounds on the battlefield. Hopkins was a member of Merrill's Marauders, a famous deep penetration unit that served in Burma in World War II. The 1962 film, Merrill's Marauders, is based on their experiences. Well, actually, I was on New Georgia Island, having just been through a very severe infantry campaign, and I was sitting in a little lean-to, which was the aid station up in the jungle, and we got a telephone message over the wire that President Roosevelt wanted volunteers for a dangerous and hazardous mission. I was rather unhappy because I felt that we'd lost many more men than we should have because of very poor judgments from our superiors. We had several aid men killed because they were sent out to pick up a dead man in an area that wasn't safe. And I said, I think I'd like to go. They wanted all categories for an infantry battalion, including a physician. And most of my aid men said, I'd like to go too. Unfortunately, they only took one, and he had trouble getting away, but they were very happy to get rid of me. It was not until after the campaign was over that I found out why President Roosevelt wanted volunteers. In August of 1943, which of course was later, He met in Quebec with uh, Lord Mountbatten and Winston Churchill and a general named Wingate who had been in Burma the year before and had lost approximately half of his command. But the British realized that they were actually doing something and could go into Burma and fight the Japanese, hopefully successfully. So out of this, Wingate, apparently with the aid of uh, Mountbatten, recommended that uh, the United States send a regiment of Americans to help the British in Burma. And Roosevelt and Marshall decided, well, that would be a good idea. Arnold was also there, and Arnold had told uh, Wingate, and Wingate was very worried because he had no way to get his casualties out on this previous campaign. So Marshall, uh, General Arnold, the Air Force general, said, well, I'll give you a whole Air Force, including bombers, fighters, transport planes, and 100 Piper Cubs. You can use these Piper Cubs to get your casualties out. So orders immediately went out that the Army should seek for volunteers for this mission in Burma. That went to all the armed forces throughout the world. I thought we were going to another island, and we'd have very good commanding officers because Roosevelt would be aware of the program. Uh, About a week after I volunteered, I got notice that I was... I should get ready to leave. So I got in a jeep with two or three other volunteers. They took very few men, actually, from my battalion. We went down to the beach. We were in the jungle. We went down to the beach. We got to the beach. We found a whole city there, practically, that CBs had set up tents and nice homes and everything else. And the the Japanese airfield had been greatly extended. And uh, from there, we walked onto a tremendous boat, I think it was called a landing craft tank, which I'd never seen before, apparently just arrived in the Pacific, and on that we went approximately 125 miles to Guadalcanal. Got to Guadalcanal, we were 
camped out in the open with the mosquitoes and everything and uh, not knowing what was going to happen. And we found that we would be going to New Caledonia. Actually, we didn't even know that until we got on the boat. While there, I got bit by a scorpion, which was something I hadn't been aware of before, but was extremely painful. We were soon embarked on a boat which took us to New Caledonia, which is a French possession, about a 1,000 miles. And here we found approximately 400 other men. And we were taken into the outskirts of Numea, the capital, where we rested and got shots and examined the men for approximately two weeks. This camp had no electricity, running water, telephone, nothing. And um, we did very careful examinations and had to get rid of several men who were obviously unfit for combat. These men, of course, had been in the jungle for months, some of them. They had no chest x-rays. They had all sorts of complaints that never had adequate examinations or treatment. And uh, then one day, some trucks pulled up, and we were herded on the trucks and went approximately 15 miles to New Caledonia, where we found this beautiful ship, the Luraline, which had been converted into a troop ship. And on the leaning over the railings were these these pale-faced, healthy-looking young men in nice, clean uniforms, looking down to this bunch of yellow-complexion people from Atterburn we'd been on as a malaria prophylactic. And we were put on barges and taken out to the ship and climbed up rope ladders, which was about the third time I'd ever done that. And that is quite an experience when you're climbing up the side of a tall ship. At any rate, we very quickly uh, fitted in, and we found that we were joining two other battalions. One were volunteers from the Caribbean and Trinidad, and the other other battalion was a group of men who had volunteered from from the armed forces throughout the world. I think the men uh, were sort of awed that were on the ship to see these men who had been in combat, but they were extremely respectful and obviously were interested in seeking out stories and finding out what it was like and so on. And during our brief training episodes on the ship, they were very willing to listen to any, uh, any information the men could give them. I think many of the men from the Pacific who volunteered were just unhappy with the way things went. They felt that they weren't very appreciative of some of their offices and whatnot, and they were very upset over the fact that men had been needlessly killed in combat because of poor planning and poor supplies and so on and so forth. Our training was laid out to us by an American general who had been in that area and was well known to Wingate, actually. Wingate's chief um, contribution was that he took our infantry, each of our infantry battalions and divided them into two combat teams. And that's how we got the combat teams. There were approximately 400 men in each combat team. And each combat team consisted of one or two rifle companies or one and one-half rifle companies plus some other uh, arrangement and plus a headquarters company plus a medical detachment and then a, a pioneer and demolitions unit, etc. Actually, our officers came with us, so we were very impressed by our officers, especially. I was very impressed by those in the 3rd Battalion, which I was in. Of course, they'd, they'd been in combat. I was very impressed. They were great guys. You know, we had uh, no spit and polish at all. The men were just with the officers, and they looked upon them as brothers and friends and uh, comrades. And, of course, one uh, one thing about the marauders was that, you know, when you're in a platoon, 
the men that are in that platoon with you are your friends and comrades. And, uh, I mean, they fought for each other and looked out after each other. And I think the men felt that they really were part of the unit. As far as the training goes, actually each battalion uh, had basically its own training. They did not follow the recommendations that were laid down by the by Wingate's group. The 3rd Battalion concentrated more on learning how to fire every single weapon and using as much ammunition and whatnot in, in training as possible, whereas A Battalion and B Battalion did a lot of marching and so forth and so on. We did not do as much as they did. Ours was more under the control of platoons rather than companies or, or the combat team commander. I think our men in the 3rd Battalion felt that every single man had to know how to handle every single weapon. They had to know how to read maps. They had to do everything. They had to know how to operate radios and talk over the radios. They had to know that they might have to take over the command of their squad or the platoon or something in case of an emergency. We uh, sort of realized from the very beginning that we were expendable. The word got out that some of the people had been told that we were expendable and we were not. uh, They didn't consider that we would uh, come out of, of wherever we were going as a unit that the whole outfit might be destroyed. I mean, that that word got out after we began to realize where we were. Of course, we never knew where we were going until we actually got to India. And then we began to realize that we were going into Burma under Wingate. Of course, that changed later when we were turned over to General Stilwell. When Stilwell heard that American troops were coming to India, uh, he was very excited and said how wonderful it would be. But when he heard that they would be under Wingate, he very definitely implied in his statements, we did not know this, that it was a terrible situation to put American troops under Wingate, who had had such a terrible time in Burma and lost so many of his own men. But what happened was we stayed under Wingate until just before we would go into Burma and our training of practically little training, which amounted to maybe a month of actual training, it became aware that Stilwell suddenly realized that his Chinese troops were not advancing the way he wished, and he had to do something. So as he had on several other occasions, he allegedly approached Montbatten and urged him to give him the American troops. And uh, after January the 1st of 1944, Montbatten suddenly decided to give the troops to, to Stilwell. Actually, one of the <clears throat> men who was on the American staff in India recently wrote in and stated that that one day this subject came up and, and the British general said, well, why don't we just give them to Stilwell? So that was that. They turned us over to Stilwell. Of course, originally we were supposed to go into Burma with Wingate as a brigade. He had, I think, six other brigades, which meant we would be going in with approximately 10,000 British troops about 200 miles further south from where we eventually went in. So at the last minute, all of our supplies and everything had to be transported approximately 1,200 miles by three different gauge railroads over two rivers where the trains crossed on barges to uh, Assam, India, which would be north of Burma. And the supplies had to be set up in warehouses. Arrangements had to be made with the Air Corps for transportation of our freight and everything and and for our support, and they were not prepared for any of this because this shift was made at the last minute, and that brought about severe complications during the campaign. 
I think they were happy to reach a point where they were through with their training and so forth and, uh, and do whatever they were supposed to do. They were extremely well-disciplined and cooperative and appeared to be happy. And I think marching for 10 days uh, down this dirt path it was, through one mountain range, up and down mountain range and whatnot, through uh, dense uh, jungle and um, magnificent trees and everything, it was really a very interesting walk, except at times it was extremely fatiguing. And I think it did them good. It broke them in. After marching approximately 150 miles, we reached what we considered to be D-Day, where we crossed the Chinwin River into Burma. We marched uh, through the jungle to the left of the Japanese-held road and territory where the Chinese were fighting, far to the left. And after approximately uh, 100 miles, uh, we were told that we had to hurry up to hit the Japanese at a village called Wallabom, which was on the main road into North Burma, which was held by Japanese. Uh, so we abandoned a drop of uh, food and ammunition and started marching in the late afternoon and marched all night long and a good bit of the next day until we hit uh, a village called Laganga. And while passing through Laganga single file, we suddenly saw six Japanese coming down a trail and they were suddenly obliterated. And after that, we were within four miles of where we were to make a block overlooking this road at Wallabom, which was a Japanese headquarters area. They were supporting several thousand Japanese who were fighting the Chinese 20 miles further to the north. And uh, our colonel decided to send uh, one of our lieutenants, Lieutenant Logan Weston, who had in charge of the INR platoon, across the river to protect our right flank. This was late in the afternoon. There'd been several minor skirmishes, uh, you know, in the area with dead Japanese, but no dead Americans. And Weston crossed the river and bedded down for the night in the swamp. The next morning, he took his platoon to a little better area, but still across the river. And they were rapidly encircled by a, a company of Japanese. Uh, they fought there for about four hours, and they were finally pushed right back up against the river and had taken three casualties, including two, both of which died, and they, was, they were ordered to cross the river, uh, to escape across the river. That was a very interesting episode, which is really part of Wallabom. Uh, Weston had a couple of men take off their undershirts and tie them onto bushes on the edge of the river, and then he got most of his platoon across with, the, uh, with two wounded men. And during this... Uh, the, the men who had crossed set up uh, a field of fire on the other side of the river to protect those who crossed. Weston finally got across as the last man firing as he came across. Why he was not killed, no one knows. But it was a fantastic, heroic thing that he did, and the way he got his men organized and across was a miracle. Uh, one of the men, a, a Indian-American, Janus, was able to knock off seven individuals who were trying to get a machine gun going. At any rate, uh, this, I think, was a remarkable little battle that uh, did a lot, perhaps, to get everybody settled and going properly because they suddenly realized they could easily defeat the Japanese. If those Japanese had knocked out Western and had gotten across the river, they would have trapped uh, my battalion, who 
was already on the way three or four miles further to Wallabum. After this was over, we got to Wallabum and we dug in in the bend of a river about 10 feet above the river with Wallabum on the other side of the river. This was on the 4th of March. We fought there from the 3rd of March to to late in the evening of the 6th and 7th of March. And during that, there were several Banzai attacks. The Japanese were throwing artillery over us into A Battalion and B Battalion, who were further, who were in back of us. And uh, during this battle, by some miracle, we had no one killed. We had several minor wounded. Uh, Khaki, our other combat team in my 3rd Battalion, came in to help us later, and they had a couple of men killed. But during this battle uh, and the other minor battles around Wallabum, we were given credit for killing 800 Japanese. They were piled up at the riverbank, and no Japanese ever crossed the riverbank. Two machine guns each fired 5,000 rounds on one of these Banzai attacks. So you can well imagine what was happening. The men were hollering at the Japs. The Japs were hollering at the Americans and cursing each other. And... Um, it was really a fantastic thing that went on day and night. Actually, we had run out of food the, f the first night we were there and had nothing to eat for two and a half or three days. And uh, before the battle was finally over, we were out of ammunition. But for some strange reason, no one was able to bring up ammunition to us. However, we sent a man back who did get back with ammunition at the last minute. But fortunately, the Japanese were defeated and they pulled out. And this <clears throat> led to the entire Japanese division pulling out. They left the Chinese, they left us, and they went south uh, through a pass into the Mogon Valley, which was an, another valley, which meant that the Battle of Wallabum was extremely uh, important and final. I think it should be realized that if the Japanese had known that we were out of ammunition, they might have hung on a little bit longer. I think another very interesting point is that Merrill's Marauders was originally classified as a as a regiment, 5307 Composite un, a Regiment Provisional. But when General Merrill arrived, he had to command a, something else, so they called it a unit. And this led the Japanese to think that since the general was commanding, that they were being faced by an entire division rather than a regiment. And this may very well have had something to do with the fact that they retreated out to another valley. Well, I should have explained to you that all of our food and ammunition was dropped by parachute. We never had any training in this. Our first parachute drop was on D-Days. We crossed into Japanese territory. And we would get food every three or four days, depending upon the situation. Well, occasionally the food was late. And before the Battle of Wallabum... Uh, we had had to pull out and leave our supplies laying on the ground because we were ordered by General Stilwell to advance immediately. So when we got to Wallabum, we only had enough food for perhaps a half day, and here we were going four days without food. And uh, for some strange reason, uh, one or two drops were scheduled, but they were unable to have the drop. So it was a very bad situation. Toward the end of the Battle of Wallabom, there was no question in the men's minds that the Japanese could easily be defeated. To be perfectly frank with you, I think having been fighting the Japanese in the Pacific, we already realized this, but this 
very definitely improved our opinion about our ability and about the ability of our soldiers. These men were brave individuals. That some of them actually enjoyed fighting. There's no question about it. But I'll tell you that some things uh, were rather disturbing. For instance, we had a young lieutenant named Weingartner who was sitting on the riverbank uh, during this battle shooting at the Japanese, and he was out of ammunition except for uh, several bullets in his pistol. And he was talking to an enlisted man who was next to him, and they both agreed that they would save two bullets, one for each, one for the lieutenant and one for the private, in case the Japanese did break through. Unfortunately, the Japanese did not realize that we were out of ammunition, and they pulled out because they had been totally defeated. And they realized that, uh, that they absolutely could not compete with the Americans on at that particular time. Well, you know, in combat, <laughs> there's always friendly fire. I learned this in the Pacific, you know, and I could cite many instances. But uh, unfortunately, that did happen. We had very little of that at Wallabum. We had it later. But uh, after the battle was over and the Chinese finally arrived... Uh, we did not know they were coming, and uh, they fired on our troops, and uh, two of the Chinese were wounded. We got this thing corrected, and we took care of the Chinese. But this is something that happened all too frequently in combat. Actually, st from a statistical standpoint, I showed uh, by a wound ballistic study that approximately 15% of all of our dead were due to our own fire and an equivalent number of wounded would do their own fire. Mostly artillery fire would give us friendly fire casualties. Of course, we also had other casualties at Wallabum from sickness, um, and maybe dysentery was one, and uh, attacks of malaria and various types of accidents. So after the Wallabum, marauders had lost approximately 200 men from illness and various other things, mostly not in the 3rd Battalion, but in the other two battalions. The 1st Battalion was to, uh, to advance in the jungle uh, left of the main Japanese road. And the Japanese, mind you, were now in the Mogon Valley. They would advance through the jungle, left of the road, and go approximately 50 miles to throw a roadblock at a town called Shadazup, which was on the road. Now, a town was just a bunch of grass shacks. Uh, they were to throw that block uh, on the approximately 20, 24th of March. The 2nd and 3rd Battalions were also to advance to the left of the road, but much further to the east toward China. And they were to go, they were to follow a river which was running from south to north, which ended up as the Chinwin River. The uh, second and third battalion were to march approximately, uh, I would say, about 100 miles compared to a battalion, which was to march approximately 50 miles. The second and third battalion were to hit the Japanese road approximately 10 miles south of the first battalion. So what happened was that a battalion started out first, but they had such a terrible time moving through the jungle that they were extremely slow, and they had something like 15 or 20 actions with the Japanese on the way to this roadblock. Now, part of that roadblock, they actually had to cut their way through dense bamboo and jungle territory 
in order to advance around Japanese who were blocking trails. And finally, for the last eight or ten miles of that march toward the potential block at, at Shatters Up, they had to go down a riverbed, which was a very narrow gorge, and the going was extremely difficult. So they got to Shatters Up a couple of days later than we got to Tongatong. But what happened was they actually got to this river, which they had to cross to block the road. The river was east of the road, so they had to cross the river and then hit this Japanese camp at Shatters Up. They spent the night across the river from Shatters Up most of the night, and they could see Japanese sentries on the other side. And they uh, sent uh, several patrols across the river and found they could wade the river. It wasn't too deep. It came up to some people's necks, especially the short men. So along about 4 a.m. in the morning, <clears throat> mind you, this battalion had two combat teams. They sent one combat team across the river, and they kept the other combat team on the other side of the river where they could give them mortar support and other things. And this combat team divided into platoons at some distance in between each one rushed the river in the early morning hours and they caught the Japanese when they were getting up to get breakfast and whatnot. And there was, uh, they, they slaughtered the Japanese. And what I guess any Japanese that survived disappeared into the jungle. Well, then, of course, the Americans began digging in in the road to block any passage and to stop the, and to knock out any Japanese that came down there to try to help their fellow soldiers. And they fought there all day and alleged to have killed perhaps 400 Japanese. Well, <clears throat> when nighttime came, the Chinese would, they, they had been followed on this mission by a regiment of Chinese who had artillery. PAC-75s. So once they had things under control, they sent the Chinese across the river to take their positions on the road, and they went back onto the other side of the road where they joined the rest of their battalion. This was a very successful mission, but they had minimal casualties, probably seven or eight dead and 15 or 20 wounded. And in back of the Japanese, it was an American surgical portable unit which took care of their wounded. But many of these wounded did not get out for several days to get definitive care because they were in such a horrible situation down there and there was no place for any planes to land to take them out. Now, this was a very decisive battle because it meant that the Japanese who had been uh, facing the Chinese further north at the pass between the Hukan Valley and the Mogan Valley, uh, these Japanese had to pull out to help their there are members who were fighting at, uh, south of Shadowzook and allowed the Chinese to enter the Mogon Valley. It was said that on the ship that traveled to the POW camp, the conditions were so horrible and the hold was so crowded that men would simply die standing up. Letters from My Father is a new docu-series podcast starring Jack Quaid from Oppenheimer and the Boys. It's the story of one woman who retraces her World War II veteran father's steps after he was captured by the Japanese and kept in one of the most notorious POW camps and had to find a way to survive. You can find Letters from My Father from Voyage Media anywhere you listen to podcasts. 
Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. At the Battle of Wallabum, Bibitain had been sent uh, uh, to the west to throw a roadblock about two miles north of where the third battalion threw a roadblock. And while at that roadblock, which had been reached with great difficulty through dense jungle, one of our Nisi Japanese Americans was sent up a telephone pole to listen to Japanese messages, and he uh, found out the exact location of a Japanese ammunition dump. This message was passed down to his colonel, and um, fighter bombers were sent in, and they blew up the ammunition dump, which undoubtedly offered uh, great help to the American forces. While the 1st Battalion was on their mission to shatters up, the 2nd and 3rd Battalion's mission, as I've said before, was to go approximately 100 miles and throw a roadblock several miles south of Shadows Up at a place called Tongatong. This was a very difficult march, but we made much better time than, uh, than the 1st Battalion did towards Shadows Up. Well, near the end of the Battle of Tongatong, message came through that the Jap- a large force of Japanese was advancing from the south to trap the Americans at Napunga. The only thing that prevented this and allowed them to get to Napunga in time to prevent being trapped was Logan Weston's platoon, which was uh, south of Napunga, and they actually held up the Japanese for several days to allow uh, the uh, second battalion and what was left of the third battalion to get to Napunga. The third battalion had gone through Napunga to approximately four miles downhill to an elevation of approximately 1,000 feet where they found a rice paddy and they set up a small airfield where supplies could be brought in, wounded could be taken out, and um, an effort made to keep the trails open leading to the the 2nd Battalion. The 2nd Battalion had been ordered to stay there to block the trail so the Japanese could not go further north and get in back of the Chinese. The Pumba became known as Maggot Hill because of the several hundred dead Japanese surrounding the perimeter and approximately 100 dead mules and horses with millions of blue-bottle flies. The odor was so great after several days you could smell it for a mile or more. Well, on Maggot Hill, of course, uh, several Nisi Japanese Americans were available. One of them was Roy Matsumoto, who was called upon on numerous occasions to... um, try to get Japanese information, and he would crawl out in the middle of the night, listen to Japanese orders, and then report to uh, his commanding officer, Colonel Beach. On one occasion, it became quite apparent that the Japanese were going to pull a banzai attack in front of um, 
McLogan's front. So everything was set up, and when this attack did come, the Japanese were slaughtered. It is said that they counted uh, over 50 dead Japanese shortly after the battle was over. But uh, if this information had not been available, it's quite possible that they, they could have broken into the perimeter and slaughtered many of B Battalion's men and perhaps overrun the entire area. Well, the medical, the setup for medical help was terrible, actually. Our medical supplies were carried on in cases on the backs of a couple of mules. And we had aspirin and we had cascara and a little soda bicarb and things of that sort. We also had sulfadiazine, which we occasionally gave men, but our chief medication was sulfanilamide powder, which the, men, the first aid men sprinkled into the wounds before they put dressings on. The thing that really helped us was blood plasma, which was a, <clears throat> came in two bottles. One was the powder in a bottle, the other one was a liquid that you to use to reconstitute the stuff so it could be given intravenously. And anyone with a serious wound was immediately given blood plasma as soon as we could get hold of him. The aid station was usually within rarely any more than 60 yards away from where the fighting was going on. Sometimes it was with the company that was doing most of the fighting. And um, the doctors, at least as far as I was concerned, always operated up there where the men were being hit. And as soon as the aid men or their buddies brought them back uh, to that point, we would start giving them plasma or doing whatever was necessary. At uh, Napunga, all the wounded on Napunga were trapped up there. Their first, uh, maybe 25 or 30 wounded, uh, were carried down the trail four miles to Samsingang where they were evacuated. But from then on, they were trapped at Napunga. And the only attention they got was to put them in a foxhole and let them rest there and try to feed them and take care of them. Uh, on some occasions, for severe fractures, they were treated uh, by putting plastic calves on the extremities and letting maggots eat up the dead flesh, which undoubtedly saved a, a lot of pro prevented a lot of problems. This is a very well-recognized treatment. Uh, we weren't able to do any significant operation occasion other than to stop bleeding, maybe with a clamp sometime. Our chief purpose was to put dressings on the men to stop the bleeding and encourage them that they, were, that they didn't have a mortal wound, that they would survive. Uh, in combat, most people who are killed die very quickly. And uh, the wounded, uh, belly wounds and chest wounds and head wounds, uh, most of them in our case didn't survive long enough to get to any medical facility. The wounds that survived were the extremity wounds. The thing that really worked out was during the Battle of Wallabom, these little Piper Cubs were coming in bringing messages and whatnot, and we found that we could put one wounded man on each plane. We didn't even know the planes were in India. These were planes that General Arnold had promised General Wingate, and um, they were being flown by American sergeant pilots, and they had to come up to our area to get the British to the hospital, so we started using them. And, of course, the American pilots were extremely cooperative, so we got the benefit of the 100 Piper Cubs that General Arnold sent over to help General Wingate. Men that had malaria would uh, begin to ache all over and, and develop chills and fever. And depending upon the, what type of malaria they had, the chills would come every second day or the 
fourth day, etc. One type of malaria, uh, cerebral malaria, was highly fatal. Fortunately, we didn't have too much of that. But we considered malaria a problem that uh, <clears throat> did not require evacuation unless the individual was critically ill, and we would keep them in and treat them on their feet. Scrub typhus is a condition, actually the technical name is Sitsugimushi fever. That was brought into Burma by the Japanese troops and had been shown to be present in Burma before we ever got there and was known to the medical authorities, but they never informed anybody in Merrill's Marauders. Uh, you got it by from fleas that transmitted it from rats or other ground creatures. And uh, the what happened was the individual would, once they were inoculated, would get a violent headache for a couple of days, then they would get uh, aches and pains and they'd get a skin rash and sometimes glands would swell up and, and then they would get a high fever and the temperature would go up as high as 106. And if they weren't evacuated quickly, they would all die. In fact, even with uh, medical treatment, uh, quite a few of them died. It's known that we lost 40 dead from scrub typhus in Merrill's Marauders and perhaps there were more. This, of course, was due to the fact that uh, records were lost for some reason by the, um, by the rear base echelon. And this applied to many records. In fact, the theory was that they'd been purposely destroyed by someone. We don't know who or why. Typhus or Sitchikamusi fever was, of course, the, the dangerous one. And we never knew about that condition until we were going on our third mission over this mountain, 6,500-foot mountain pass, where we got a radio message that we had this condition. Uh, some of the men we'd sent back who had already started up the mountain when they got sick had been sent back and were evacuated and was shown to have scrub typhus. Uh, we also had everyone, as far as I'm concerned, had a maybe dysentery, uh, which we picked up from Chinese who were contaminating rivers and streams from which we were getting water. And also perhaps some of the natives had been contaminated rivers and streams. Well, I'll tell you, from my standpoint, when I went into Burma, I was in excellent physical condition. Actually, I lost 30 pounds. Uh, some of the men lost 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, even 80 pounds. And uh, it was just a very trying situation, but there was nothing we could do. I mean, we, had, uh, we just had to keep going. And our chief problem was in that last mission where these poor devils with Sitchikamushi fever or scrub typhus had to march 40 or 50 miles before we could get them out. And it was just heartbreaking. I mean, the situation really broke down when we got to Mishinaw. Actually, at that point, I had uh, left Burma with uh, most of the 3rd Battalion. And I was in a hospital with amoebae dysentery and several other problems in India. And only I was in what they called a rest area, which was a bunch of mildewed grass shacks with no you know, dirt floors, no windows, nothing, and very poor food and very poor running water and so forth. And uh, we got a message that they were rounding up men who had been released from the hospitals and were sending them back to Mishinaw. So Dr. A. Lewis Kaladni and I got very upset, and we actually pulled men off the trucks, and we argued with the doctors, and we gave these men emergency medical tags and sent them back to the hospital. Well, unfortunately, approximately 200 of these men got sent back to Mishinaw. And uh, some of the officers uh, pulled quite a few of them and sent them back to the hospitals. But uh, this was allegedly due to the orders of one general down there whose name I won't mention.
But the order had originally come from Doctor from General Stilwell, and they always said, "Well, it was misinterpreted." The men who were wounded and came out sick during the first two missions mostly went to the Twentieth General Hospital, where they received very wonderful treatment. But for the men that came out after, during, and after the third mission. Uh, they had to be sent to hospitals in some cases which were not really qualified to take care of them, and they received very poor treatment. Uh, most of the men with scrub typhus that went to the 20th General Hospital survived, whereas a high percentage of those that went to the 14th Evacuation Hospital or the 101st, uh, I think the name of the hospital was, had a higher mortality because they did not have the proper facilities. And, uh, but that was a sad situation. And nothing we could do about it. And it's just like General Merrill had said that that we would be evacuated if we went to Mission or as soon as that airfield was captured, we would be sent out on the planes that brought the Chinese in. We would have a, a fantastic rest area for which the money had already been sent aside to give us adequate uh, recreational facilities, and et cetera, et cetera. And, of course, what happened was General Merrill had said, I'll be the first one on the airfield when it's captured. But, unfortunately, General Merrill didn't show up for at least two days, and he said, we will have food and ammunition as soon as the airfield is captured. That didn't arrive for a couple of days, which allowed the Japanese to bring in replacements. Otherwise, the town could have been taken as soon as we took the airfield. But the Japanese had perhaps five or 600 men there when we took the airfield, by the time we got ammunition and food, they had something like 4,000 men there before it was over. And that meant that uh, approximately uh, 3,500 Chinese were wounded and over 1,000 were killed and over 800 Americans were killed and something like 350 were, uh, I mean, over 850 were wounded and approximately 350 were killed during the Battle of Mishinaw. I should also say that a bombing raid during the Battle of Mishinaw was ordered by the Air Force, and they came over the wrong direction. They dropped the bombs at the wrong location. They'd refused to take uh, to allow the troops on the ground to offer them uh, radio control of the situation, and they buried an American tomb to a platoon of infantry soldiers. There's no record as to how many were killed, but uh, a large number were killed by American bombers coming over. Colonel Hunter, in his letter, uh, informed General Stilwell that the marauders had been mistreated in various ways. This began way back in the training period, where they, where the training was taken away from his command and given to someone that uh, had really nothing to do with them. Uh, the fact that they never had uh, adequate um, uh, chaplain service, they didn't have dental service, uh, the medical headquarters and um, CBI didn't even know they were there. They never got adequate supplies, equipment and whatnot until General Merrill arrived. In fact, uh, the headquarters paid no attention to them until General Merrill arrived. They were rarely visited by anyone of any consequence in the theater. Uh, Decorations had been ignored. Promotions had been ignored. They never had any, well, they really never had a name. They didn't have a band. They didn't have, uh, didn't have colors. They didn't have flags. They absolutely had nothing. And uh, they'd been promised um, numerous things, such as the fact that ammunition and food would be available as soon as the airport was captured. 
and they had definitely been promised that they would be evacuated en masse as soon as the airfield was taken, and the Chinese would, would take over and complete the, the battle. The reaction was that General Stilwell uh, <clears throat> said very little about it, but uh, he, uh, a day or two later, uh, Colonel Hunter was uh, informed that he was relieved of his command and orders were given him that he would return to the United States by boat. I mean, some of the men came home by boat. Some of them were when they just decided it was time to go home. And they just went home without any orders. I mean, there were a few of those. <laughs> yeah, I thought that was, uh, when I heard about this, I thought it was absolutely horrible. And the, the impression I got was that uh, they were trying to hide something. They didn't want uh, Colonel Hunter to give his opinion exactly what uh, the campaign was all about. Well, as far as I'm concerned, they were a magnificent bunch of men. I mean, I just had no idea that the average American individual, you know, without uh, vast training and so on and so forth, could perform so magnificently, especially those in my battalion. These other men did great, too, even though they had no experience, B battalion and A battalion. And it just showed me that with the problem, with... If you give the American GI half a chance, he's going to behave in a fantastic way. I mean, we did have a little problem, such as perhaps half of my battalion went AWL at Christmas time in 1943, but they all came back. Some of them got there just before we went, took off for Burma, but they were dedicated individuals, and their only excuse was that we just haven't had leave for a long, long time, and <laughs> that was that. But they did a fantastic job. As I said, some of them seemed to like to fight. But they were a bunch of individuals that believed in some human rights. And uh, as far as I was concerned, the officers were magnificent, really. We had uh, very few problems. And I liked the way they, the men and the officers got along. There was no spit and polish. I mean, when we trained with the British, we saw little of them, but they were all spit and polish, you know. And uh, it was different with the marauders. They realized that, um, that we had been invaded, and we, we also knew, of course, that the Germans were trying to take over the world, and we didn't want to be enslaved, and we didn't want the Japanese. The Japanese were trying to gobble up a lot of the world's resources, you know, and uh, these men, even though many of them were not uh, high school graduates, they realized all this. But they... Uh, they wanted to get home, and they felt the only way to do it was to go ahead and do what they were supposed to do. We had very poor communications with anything in the United States. Uh, we had very little use of any radios. Mail was very slow. We got very our mail was held up for weeks and perhaps months. When we went into Burma, our families allegedly were notified that that they would not be hearing from us for several months, and indeed some of them didn't because the mail just didn't get out. We didn't have the arriving materials while we were in Burma. There's no way to send out messages. One fantastic thing was during the Battle of the Punga, Hank uh, Gosho, who was one of our nieces, was informed that he had just uh, had a daughter born. He was on the front line at the time. I thought that was great. The Red Cross was able to get that message through and took the trouble to do it. That was James E.T. Hopkins. Next time on Warriors in Their Own Words, we'll hear from Amy McGrath, a Marine Corps aviator who flew 89 combat missions in Iraq and Afghanistan. 
In 2002, as a weapons systems officer, McGrath became the first woman in the Marine Corps to fly a combat mission in the F-18. Warriors in Their Own Words is a production of Evergreen Podcasts in partnership with The Honor Project. Our producer is Declan Roars. Bridget Coyne is our production director, and Sean Rulhoffman is our audio engineer. Special thanks to Evergreen executive producers Joan Andrews, Michael DeAloya, and David Moss. I'm Ken Harbaugh, and this is Warriors in Their Own Words. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.